Philippians chapter 2. We know what today we join in with Christians around the world triumphantly declaring that Jesus is alive. Amen? That he has risen. He has risen. And uh, this morning, as we have gathered on this particular day, I have a question that I want to ask you that Jesus asked his disciples that is a question of absolute utmost importance. It's not a long question, but it's a very significant question for each of us to answer. Jesus asked his disciples on a very particular day as they were together, Jesus asked his disciples a very pointed question. He said, who do men say that I am? And, and more than just who do the people say that Jesus is, you see, in that day, people said a whole bunch of things. There were some people that heard about Jesus and what he had done, and they said, well, Jesus is Elijah. He is the prophet. Others said he is the prophet Jeremiah. Some thought that Jesus was John the Baptist. But see, that's a simple question, and yet it has so much significance behind it. Because how I answer the question, who is Jesus, really determines my life forever, really. Have you ever thought about that? I want to ask you a question this morning. How many of you remember the day you became a born-again Christian? The day you remember that? How many? Hold up your hand, all right? Now, if you remember that day, what changed on that day? Certainly, you probably had heard the gospel many times before then, maybe. But, but what happened on that day that for the first time in your life, you believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? You believe that there was life in his name. You know, over the last 14 days, we've been going through a time of prayer and fasting as a church. And I've so enjoyed, as we finished yesterday, reading in the Gospel of John. And you know what? So frequently, I, I, I was reading the Gospel with my iPad, and, and every time I came to the word believe, I would highlight it. And I couldn't get over the number of times in John's Gospel that that one word believe is used. And John ends his gospel this way. He said, Jesus did many other signs among the disciples. You know, we read the account of what is in the gospels and we think, man, that's a tremendous amount of miraculous things. But John said, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, notice again, you may have life in his name. And so this morning, I want you to consider your life a second this morning. Has there been a time in your life when you've answered that very significant question of who is Jesus? And I wonder, not only have you answered the question, but have you come to understand what the Bible says about it, that there is truly life in his name? You've opened this morning to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. And I want to see this morning this, this portrait of Jesus in coming to this world, giving himself as a ransom for many, but then to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. You remember on that day when, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter answered it, and he answered it rightly. 
He said, you, if you can, if you remember what Peter said, will you say it with me? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You see, Peter got it right. He recognized that Jesus truly was the Messiah, that he is the divinely appointed king of Israel. And Jesus was not just a good teacher. He was not just a reform, uh, uh, kind of a moral reformer, but he is the Christ. And get this, one of the greatest revelations that you and I have is that this message of Christianity, but the central message in the gospel, really the, 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 the most miraculous miracle, if you want to think about it like that, is Jesus Christ, God himself, becoming man. Out of all the evidences that there are that Jesus Christ is truly the Messiah, can I ask you this morning, what is the defining evidence that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the anointed one? Someone tell me. He rose again, man. Like, that is the defining moment of Jesus proving to be who he said he was. It's today. It's, it's what Easter represents. It's all that we're celebrating today, that, that God entered into this world. And you know what? As I was reading the Gospel of John this past week, I feel so far from you this morning. I'm coming to join you. There's a great chasm, and it's too far for me. All right? I just, there we are. So much better. You know what? As I read the Gospel of John this week, you know what I, you know, you know, you know what I was reminded with? That even in Jesus' day, there were people that had a perception of who he was. There, there were people that had an idea of what Jesus should have been or who he should have, things he should have done. And there were a lot of people that were familiar with Jesus. Actually, I think the whole town of Jerusalem by, you know, a year into Jesus' ministry would have recognized the name. And in fact, the same is actually true in our world today. There are a lot of people in our world today that are familiar with Jesus. There are some places around the world that have never heard that name. But as I think about our context here in, in America, as I think about our context here in rural kind of southwest Virginia, you know, you know what I think about? Many people are familiar with Jesus. Many people have heard of Jesus. They have heard of what Jesus has done. But, you know, there's a lot of people that really don't know him. There's a lot of people that have heard what Jesus has done. They've heard about the cross. They've, they've heard about the resurrection. But, but for them, they're familiar with Jesus, but they do not know Jesus and maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've come into this place this morning and you have a whole bunch of false assumptions of who Jesus is and what he did. Maybe just like the religious leaders in Jesus' day, you have an image of Jesus that is actually not true. It's a false idea of something that you've thought. But you know what we need to do today? We need to see Jesus clearly. That's what we need as the church. As the church, we need to see Jesus clearly. And sadly, in our culture today, you know what's happened? We've recognized that, yes, we're to believe in Jesus, but sadly, somehow, even in the church today, there's this growing disconnect between embracing Christ's death in his life and then actually living it. And notice, when we think about that, somehow there's this inseparable link between the life that Jesus lived and now the life that he calls us as his followers to live. 
As one person said, many people have accepted his death, but they have never come to embrace his life. And I wonder if that's you this morning. I wonder if you recognize that Jesus died. You, you, you give mental assent to the fact that Jesus died, but I wonder this morning, have you come to embrace his life? Jesus said, and notice in John's gospel, this is written, these things were written, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's the life of Christ that I want us to consider this morning. You've opened your Bible there to Philippians chapter 2. Would you look there in your scriptures with me this morning as we look down beginning in verse 6 together? Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Notice what Paul writes about Jesus. Beginning in verse 6, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, wait a minute. What an amazing statement. We just got to stop right there for a second. Jesus Christ, though he was, notice, in the form of God. Notice, I like how the NIV renders it. It says, being the very nature God. Being in the very nature God. Jesus Christ was in the form of God, but notice, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. What a, what a profound statement. So when, when the writer makes that claim, when Paul is saying that, do you know what he is saying? He, he is not saying a few things. He is not saying that Jesus used to be God and that in coming to this world, he ceased to be God. It wasn't as if he was swapping his divine nature for a human nature. What Paul is saying is that Jesus willfully laid aside the advantage of those attributes. Jesus willingly gave up his privilege being equal with God. And he lived life dependent on the Father, empowered by the Spirit, really his deity was veiled in his humanity. As one person said, the incarnation of Christ was not so much a subtraction as much as it was an addition. He took upon, the Bible says, the form of a man. And there are moments in the Gospels when you can see this happening, don't we? Where we see Jesus was fully divine, but he veiled his glory from his disciples. He veiled his glory from this world that he was in. You remember the day that Jesus was gathered with his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration? How many of you remember that? And you remember the, just the dazzling account as Jesus and his glory was veiled. His, his glory that had been veiled was just unveiled and his disciples saw him in all of his brightness and all of his glory for who he truly is. You see, Jesus did not empty himself of deity. He took upon the essence of humanity. He is an alterably God. He cannot change. He never ceased to be God. So what is Paul saying in this verse when he says, though he was in the form of God, God did, he, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do you see what the Bible is saying about the God of the universe? See, this is what blows all of our minds when we think about God. Because what the Bible is saying is that the God that spoke all this world into existence, he did not consider that equality, his glory, something to be held. 
but he gave it up. He laid it aside. Notice, he did not cling to that equality. He did not cling to those privileges. He did not cling to the glory of the heavenly realm where he had been for eternity. But he gave it up. He, notice, he laid it aside. He, he did not count equality with, thing, uh, with God a thing to be grasped. So when we think about the incarnation of Christ as God coming to this world, I can't come up with any other word other than the word unselfish. Yet doesn't that shatter our image of who God is? <laughs> like, wouldn't we think that, like, for God to be God, that is like the one thing that he could be is selfish? <laughs> but in fact, that's the one thing that he is not. He's unselfish. He's unselfish in the way that he did not count that equality a thing to be grasped. So notice, what does the next verse say? But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You see, Jesus emptied himself, set aside his glory, the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. That's what Jesus said. But he emptied himself for the advantage of somebody else. He, he, he laid aside his own glory for your sake. Notice what the Bible says in verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a what? What was the form that Jesus, God himself took? What was the form? A servant. A servant. I think about the way that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And notice what the Bible says. What a staggering statement. And being born in the likeness of men. Jesus experienced our life. He took upon humanity. And, and notice, he did not set aside his deity. But can you imagine all that Jesus went through for you? Sometimes I think we have this false idea of Jesus being God that, that somehow he, 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 he knew everything. You know, it's like he was a nine-month-old baby just there in Mary's arms. And he's just thinking to himself, oh, Mary, only if you knew. You know, like you... You're like, no, no, he wasn't. He, he had to grow and he had to learn. And that's the whole point of, of Luke chapter 2. That as a one-year-old, I think Jesus understood as a one-year-old. As a six-year-old, Jesus understood as a six. But when he got to 12, he recognized that he had been sent here to fulfill his father's purpose. Jesus grew in stature, the Bible says. He grew why? Because he was made in the likeness of men. And yet, Jesus never sinned. Where you and I have blown it in many ways, Christ never did that. He was perfectly obedient to the will of his Father. And notice in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a what? Do you picture how, how Hebrews, or the writer of Philippians is talking about God being this highly exalted one, and, and, he, and he, he is made in the likeness of men, and he, 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 it's just this humbling, this humility, as he goes lower and lower and lower. And he becomes obedient to the point of what? Does God die? I mean, wait a minute. Hold on a second. He's God. <laughs> Why would God die? But he became obedient, the Bible says, to the point of death. 
even the death on a what? Listen to what one writer says. He was nailed to a cruel cross by soldiers whom he created. He was raised up to the sky on a beam of wood from the trees that he made. He peered into the eyes of people who killed him. He knew their names, their histories, their destinies. The creator was slain by his creation. And here Paul is saying, this is God. This is what God is like. He goes on to write, he says, Rethink everything you've ever thought about God and his power, his majesty, and watch that dying man nailed to a tree, gasping for breath, and see in his death the God of self-giving love. He became obedient, the Bible says, to death, even the death on a cross. That's something that is completely foreign to God. God is life, the Bible says. In him is life. He can't die, right? (laughs) Well, that's right, because doesn't Jesus say, no one takes my life from me? But Jesus did what? He laid it down. I lay my life down willingly, Jesus said. No man took away Jesus' life that day. Even as we think about Jesus hanging on the cross and all the agony and, and shame and all the reproach and all the beatings and all the pain that was inflicted upon the cross of Christ, Jesus' life was not taken from him. Jesus laid down his life, and he says, I have the authority to take it up again. But you know what? The redemption story doesn't end in verse 8. And in fact, there's a lot of world religions today that their story ends in verse 8. Their God, their leader, their follower, the one that they've given their life to died. But you know what's unique about Christianity? Do you know what's unique about the story of the Bible? That God dies, but then he what? He lives again. That's why the Bible says in verse 8, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore God has highly exalted him. How has God exalted him? He exalted him in his resurrection as Christ rose victoriously from the grave. He was ascended into heaven and he was exalted into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the Father at his coronation, in his exaltation. And God has highly exalted him and has given him the name, the name that is above every name. He didn't give Jesus a a new name. Jesus has the name. It's it's the word Lord. He is Lord. He is ruler, master of all. That's why Jesus, in that passage that I read for you in Matthew, Jesus could say to his disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Why could he say that? Because he had the right to all that authority. He had the right to all that authority. And then I want you to think about today, well, what does this mean for me? What does the gospel and all of this mean for me? I think about what one person said as we think about the cross here this morning. And man, what a beautiful display of of the flowers on the cross as we can just picture that, that, that Jesus, not only in his agony, but notice in his victory that now the cross is a symbol. It's a picture of, of, of the victory of Christ. But I'm telling you, the cross is what one author has said. The cross... Notice, is not a sign 
of how much man is worth. The cross is a sign of how depraved we really are. That it took the death of God's own son. The Bible says, for we, for you, for you were bought with a price. God himself dies for man. This is the gospel. This is grace. This is what Christ has done. And I wonder this morning, do you recognize that? Do you realize that? I was driving down the road this past week, and and the thought hit me again as I thought about Sunday and what all of this represents, that the, the, the humility of Christ, that Christ gave up. He set aside. He did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And he was made in the likeness of men. Why? So that he could identify as one of us. So that, so that my sin could be put on him. And I could be given his righteousness. I'm telling you, this is incredibly significant, not just for Resurrection Sunday, but for every Sunday that we gather. Because now, notice, it is by his life we enter into this experience of experiencing Christ's new life. He has come to deliver us from the fear of death. And you realize there are many people today that are afraid to die. They are fearful of death. But Christ has come so that we might no longer fear death. He's come that we may have this new and abundant life. The cross is a statement of just how much God loves us. I'm going to read from 1 John. In this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. You see, today is Easter, and as we think about the resurrection of Christ, which is in really a cornerstone of our redemption, this is the, this is the anchor of, of our new life in Christ, is this work that Jesus did. Do you realize that today God is inviting you to experience this in your life? Like he's extending this offer to you today. That you would leave your sin and, 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 and find his mercy and, and experience his new life. And, and my whole prayer today and, and, and this week as I've read in the Gospel of John, man, that was so encouraging, wasn't it, to read through the Gospel of John like that? And the one thought that hit me was there were so many people that encountered Christ during his earthly ministry and they rejected him. And today, it's not enough just to be familiar with Jesus. It's not enough just to simply know about the cross, to know about the resurrection. But what matters is that we believe in him. That there's a moment in our life where we've come to believe in him. And we're set free from our sin. We embrace his new life. And notice, that's what the Bible is extending to each of us. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, all of your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. And the day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it or else that it was within your reach and you have lost it forever. 
I mean, there's no more sobering word than thinking about that. Today, the offer of eternal life is available to you. But that opportunity is not forever. I hope this morning, if that's today, maybe you would answer that question, who is Jesus, for the first time, and you would recognize that he is the Savior of the world, that, that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God. That he gave himself as the Lamb who was slain. He was buried, he died, and he rose again. And he's been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. And he has been given a name that is above every name. And that's why the Bible says, Neither is there salvation in no one other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because this is our eternal hope. This is hope that lives beyond this life. And this past week, I had the incredible joy of being with a dear friend of mine, Miss Marion Thompson, as she took her last breath on this earth and as she opened her eyes in glory. A 92-year-old lady. And I tell you what, I've met a lot of people in my life, but I don't know if I've ever met a person as full of faith as this lady was. And she came to know in her life that there is a name, that there is salvation in. And it changes her life, not just in eternity, but it changed it in this world, man. It changed it here and now. I, I can tell you so many days that I'd be over there visiting with her and, 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 and she would have all these great sayings, you know. She'd say, you do your best and God will do the rest. But she was a lady that was filled with hope. Hope. Hope in this life and hope forevermore. And she could look at her life and her short days, although they were greatly numbered, and she could have this incredible peace because she knew the Lord. That to be absent from this body is to be present with Him. And this morning, my friend, I'm here to tell you that that, that, that there's something beyond this life. There's something more than just the here and now. And Jesus wants you to experience his life, and he wants you to experience it abundantly. He's come that you might have abundant life, a faith-filled, full life that lives beyond the grave. I'm telling you, Miss Marion Thompson is more alive than she has ever been. More alive than she has ever been. Because why? Because today, by believing in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ, she experienced that reality in her life, and I'm telling you, the same can be true of you. And you know what? This should radically change our church. Let me end with saying this last thing here. As I thought about Easter Sunday, you know, we think about the cross, we think about the resurrection, but really the whole point in the book of Philippians is, let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means? That means as a church, that means as a faith family, as brothers and sisters in God's family, that the mind of Christ that was willing to set aside his glory, that was willing to empty himself, that was willing to come into this world, that was willing to humble himself even to the point of death, a death on a cross. Like that same level of humility, 
is what should pervade this gathering. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is what God's calling each of us today to embrace. Maybe this morning you know the Lord is your Savior, but I wonder, are we walking His life? Are we living His life? Are we emulating His humility, His grace, His compassion, His love to one another? Not just to our community, but to His own family. Someone said something to me the other day that was so staggering. They said, you know, some of the most critical people can be people of faith. And that should never be. Because people of faith, those who are in God's family, have experienced such radical forgiveness, such deep grace, that they would have a type of humility that would put somebody else in front of themselves. That they would value somebody else more significant than them. And I pray that that's our heart. I pray that's our desire as a church. That we would be people that, that emulate God's love like that to other people. So i got two questions for you this morning. The first is, have you come to embrace salvation in the mighty name of Jesus? Because today he lives, ever lives, to intercede for you. And the greatest thing in your life could be the moment that you come to know him as your personal Lord and Savior. And if you've not done that, my friend, today's that day for you. Easter Sunday could be the day you put your faith and trust in Christ alone and experience His forgiveness, who is His new life living in through you. But if you are a Christian this morning, can I ask you this question? How does your life stack up compared to the humility of Christ? <laughs> we all have a lot to grow in, don't we? May God give us grace to do just that. Father, we thank you for your word, for your truth, for new life, and for hope. We are amazed at the depth of your love that was demonstrated in the cross. We're amazed at your power that quickens dead life and rises from the dead. But Lord, my prayer this morning is for these people. And for each of us, may we not go through this life having heard the truth and be so close but never grasp it. I pray, God, if there's someone here today that has never yet trusted in Christ Jesus, that today would be that day of salvation for them. I'm going to pause right here in my sermon and in my prayer to ask a question. No one looking around, but I want to pray for you. If God moved on your heart today and you say, Pastor Aaron, I don't know if I'm a Christian, but I sure would like to know how I can know that to be true. If that's you this morning, would you just raise your hand? Anybody like that? You say, Pastor Aaron, would you pray for me? I don't know if I'm a Christian, but today I would like to embrace that truth in my own life. I'd like to pray for you. Father, we thank you this morning for your truth, for your life. Thank you, Lord, that we can rejoice in in this day and experience all that you have for us. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy and for your kindness that's been displayed to us. May we be people, Lord, that extend that same grace, that same kindness, that same humility to others. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.